ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. How can a juror who has already decided that there has been a crime committed and that crime in fact is murder, the crime with which they're charged. And that juror knows what he's talking about because he's a law enforcement official. How can that juror possibly presume these defendants to be innocent? Those two things are just mutually exclusive by definition in my understanding. I will tell you it troubles me significantly that any individual um, separate from the lawyers in front of me here and the media would be taking it upon themselves to create a narrative that um, does not comply with this court's uh, clear wishes with regard to jury selection, identifying jurors, and um, using platforms to influence the public. I, I, I fear for him. I mean, I can understand exactly why he did what he did, because there he was, the middle of an area that he's not really familiar with, but somewhat familiar, but it's a white community. And all of a sudden, he's surrounded by guys with shotguns and all the images of things that happened in the past, including things that happened in this county and anywhere else in Georgia, um, uh, would make you fearful for your life. Okay, the battle's been joined. There's a lot to unpack in this episode. We finally have a jury, an extremely controversial jury, and that means we have a trial and opening statements. These three defendants committed four felonies against Mr. Arbery. And it all started when Gregory Beichel saw him running down the street. They committed these four felonies in violation of his personal liberty before he finally tried to run around their truck, as you saw in the evidence, and get away from these strangers, complete strangers, who had already told him that they would kill him. And that they killed him. He's coming at him. And yes, at about 20 yards, he raises the weapon because he knows Ahmad Arbery can be on him and he's hoping 
that by raising the weapon, he will de-escalate the situation. Who's going to attack a guy pointing a shotgun? If he wanted to kill him, that was an open shot. On that day, at that place, at that time, Greg McMichael was absolutely sure this was the guy. The same guy he had seen on surveillance videos. Inside a house multiple times where Greg had sound reasons to believe theft had occurred, burglary. Greg was absolutely sure. He was absolutely certain. His suspicions were well-founded. We'll get back to those in due course. But first, let's take a look at how we got here. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As always, I'm joined by Asia Simone Burns, a breaking news reporter with the AJC. We are here in Brunswick covering the trial in which Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan are charged with Ahmaud Arbery's murder. It took 12 long days to finish the jury selection process. And we now have 12 jurors and three alternate jurors in the courtroom. It almost looked like we wouldn't make it. We got oh so close to the final strikes on Tuesday. But then Jason Sheffield walked out of the courthouse during a lunchroom break and said this. At this point, though, we're looking at numbers. And we're about to arrive at the point where we have 64, quote unquote, qualified jurors. The fact that a lot of these jurors, most of them have come to court already with an opinion about guilt or a bias um, means that we have to be cautious. Sheffield represents Travis, the man who shot and killed Ahmad. We've told you that a change of venue motion was always a possibility. But some people are so fixed in their opinions that they won't change them. So the math that we're going to have to do, I think, after today is going to be whether or not we really do have a a fair composition of jurors who can be unbiased, without any strong fixed opinions, and who can give us a fair trial. Is a change of venue off the menu? Potential? It's not. No, change of venue is not off the menu, but we certainly don't want that. Of course... We were thinking, here we go again. And by the end of that day, the court had qualified 65 jurors to serve, one more than necessary. Judge Timothy Walmsley then scheduled the final part of jury selection for 9 o'clock Wednesday morning. That's when both sides would use their peremptory strikes. So if the defense was going to file a change of venue motion, it had to do so by 9 a.m. And it never happened. But Roddy Bryan's lawyer, Kevin Goff, raised a peculiar argument. That's nothing new. Goff had been telling Walmsley that he was concerned, in his words, that Bubba's and Joe Sixpacks were significantly underrepresented in the final pool of qualified jurors. He said Bubba's are white men over 40 years old, born in the South with no college education. I guess someone just like Roddy. We are still looking at, for lack of a pre- better phrase, though, Bubba, underrepresentation issue. And once again, nothing happened. Goff did not file his Bubba motion. The attorney who represents Ahmad's mother, Wanda Cooper, wasn't too happy to hear about Goff's would-be motion. Outside the courthouse, Lee Merritt said Goff was wasting the court's time. I, I think Goff is uh, doing a bit of grandstanding. He's enjoying the limelight a little too much. This is serious. This is a murder trial. 
uh, his uh, client participated in the murder of my client's son. Uh, so a bubble motion or whatever he wants to call it, it's neither uh, a legal remedy, it's not entertaining, it's not something that we want to continue to discuss, we want to get to the trial. And if he had filed that motion, Merritt is right. Goff would have been wasting his own time and the court's time. That's because the law only recognizes distinct groups that cannot be discriminated against in jury selection. Race and ethnicity is one. Gender is the other. Bubba's? They aren't protected. About the race category. Yeah. The roof almost exploded off the Glen County Courthouse the next day after the defense and prosecution finished exercising their strikes. What was left? An overwhelmingly white jury. 11 white people and one black person on the trial jury. All four of the alternates were also white. The next day, one of the jurors, a white woman, had to be excused for medical reasons. That's why we now have 12 jurors and three alternates. But about this jury? So let's think about it this way. The jury is 8% black and 92% white. Meanwhile, African Americans make up about 26% of the population of Glen County. And inside the city limits of Brunswick, it's 55%. So in a case that is so racially charged, some people have a problem with those metrics. And lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski had a problem with it too. Yes, Your Honor, at this time, the state does the reverse Batson motion called McCollum motion. In a prior episode, jury consultant Denise Della Rue predicted this would happen. And she was referring to the 1986 U.S. Supreme Court opinion, Batson versus Kentucky. Here, Donikoski explains what just happened, and she tells Walmsley, just do the math. In this case, we had 48 jurors to select from. The defense was given 24 strikes. The state was given 12 strikes. And in this case, we had 12 African-American jurors. We had 36 white jurors. So African-American jurors made up one quarter of the jury panel. But the actual jury that was selected has only one African-American male on it. It has 11 white people on it. First, let's give you a reminder as to what a Batson challenge is. Steve Wright is a law professor at Yale and Georgetown Law Schools. He knows Batson about as well as anyone. He successfully argued two such cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. So here, where the defense struck all but one, that at least raised an issue of discrimination. But then the most critical part is the party that exercised the challenge, in this case, or challenges, in this case the defense, gives reasons for the strikes. And the judge decides whether the reason is the reason given or whether the reason given is a lie or not the real reason and the real reason is race. In other words, the defense has to convince Walmsley there were race-neutral reasons behind their strikes of the black jurors. Laura Hogue, a lawyer for Greg, argues the defense's case. When she says prima facie, she means on its face or on first impression. Those numbers don't bear out a prima facie case of some intent in selection procedures. And in fact, I will state that we have a very clear selection procedure within the defense team, and the issue of race is not one of the factors. I can 
address the issue of the race neutral reasons for every single one of these. Wamsley doesn't buy it. The court does find that um, the uh, first step has been satisfied by the state, uh, given the numbers involved, the pool itself. A disproportionate number on the black members of the panel. Court finds in this particular case, the state again is satisfied its burden with regard to a McCollum or reverse Batson. Donikoski challenges eight of the defense's 11 strikes of black jurors. Because of Wamsley's finding, the defense now has to defend each and every one of those eight strikes. If they lost an argument on one black juror, that juror would be reseated in the pool. If they lost two, two must be reseated, and so on. Hogue begins by explaining why the defense struck juror 218, a black woman. That juror raised her hand to say she could not be, she had formed and expressed an opinion, and that opinion was, I feel like they're guilty. In her juror questionnaire, she said a young man was shot due to his color, and the three men that committed the act almost got away with it. Almost got away, excuse me. This juror was a completely appropriate peremptory strike. Ho continues, speaking more generally. I will say that most of the jury selection in this case and the decisions we had to make is the epitome of the lesser of two evils. Uh, We are stuck between a rock and a hard place given the fact that the majority of the African-American jurors that came in here were struck for cause immediately because of their firm opinions. Later on, we had some African-American jurors whose opinions were very strong, but they indicated that they could put them in a box and set them aside. So it's up to us to use our peremptory strikes to say to ourselves, is that the kind of juror, given those impressions and feelings weeks ago when they filled out the questionnaire and still fixed on those opinions today? Would you want that juror judging you in this case? And the answer is a resounding no. Donikoski pushes back hard. We all know that that's what she said, but they failed to provide any sort of reason to strike her that she's different than any other juror who came in here stating facts that they had heard from the news media and TV, saying they had formed an opinion based on those facts from the news media and TV, and then, of course, said, well, I formed an opinion. What she says about juror 218 is similar to what she would say about the rest of the eight strikes. Now, the quintessential question isn't whether you formed an opinion. Numerous people came in here and said, yes, I formed an opinion. It's guilty. But the real question here was, can you put that aside? Can you put that opinion aside? Because it's been based on news media, the video. It's been based on the opinions on social media, not on the evidence within these four walls. And in this case, this juror did indicate she could do that. And Donikoski's right. It wasn't only black jurors who expressed strong feelings about the defendant's guilt. White jurors did too. We ask that you find that this litany of these are the things she said doesn't really show that there's a race-neutral reason for striking her. The state's position is is that she was struck because she is an African-American female, not because she's any different than any other juror who came in. She is no different than any other juror who came in here having information about the case, an opinion about the case, and said they could set it aside. Here's Laura Hogue reciting what Juror 253, a black woman, wrote in her questionnaire. 
his life was taken, that's wrong. I feel like before somebody pulls a gun out and shoots somebody, they should think about it. There should be another solution instead of bam. Anytime someone's life is taken, she said, that's a crime. Next up, Jason Sheffield. He's talking about a black woman struck from the pool. The specific reasons for 199 begins with the quote, they hunted him down and killed him like an animal. That opinion never changed. She felt the defendants were guilty. She felt the defendants were not arrested in a timely manner. She researched the case. She posted about the case. She said the whole case is about racism. Here's Hogue again. 414 wrote on the questionnaire that she believed that her understanding of the facts of the case were after problems in the neighborhood, three men decided to take the law into their own hands. I believe that guns were used when they should not have been. I believe a man lost his life when he shouldn't have. Denikowski then makes this observation. I'm also going to ask the court to take a look at how much time was spent with each and every one of the African-American jurors. Once again, this isn't one page of notes. This is four pages of notes. Without having timed how long each prospective juror was in the hot seat, it's hard to say definitively if that's true. But Asia, you and I were both in the courtroom at different points during jury questioning. And it felt like that statement was plausible. At one point, it seemed like Judge Wamsley felt the same way. This happened when Frank Hogue was questioning a prospective black juror. He asked the juror if he would want someone like himself on the jury if he was in Greg McMichael's place. When the state objected to the question, the juror was taken out of the courtroom to allow for a discussion on the matter. When the juror returned, he didn't have to answer that question. And later, just before a break, Walmsley said he wanted to address that. Specifically, he said he had concerns that that line of questioning came up for a black man, but not for the white woman who was on the stand immediately before him. A white woman who actually knew Roddy Bryan and who had a connection with his family. He said he had concerns about that question and said it could, quote, by the court, be interpreted as a racially charged question. So I'd say it's safe to say that the way black jurors were questioned wasn't identical to the way white jurors were. Good point. Let's return to Donikoski and her views on Juror 414. She says that she hopes racism did not play a part in this case. Uh, so once again, this juror is similarly situated to every other juror who came in here and was asked, what do you think you know about this case? And she basically said, three men, three men decided to take the law into their own hands to stop who could or could not have been trespassing in nearby homes. When she was asked by Mr. Sheffield about, can you assure us Basically, can you assure us that you'll be open-minded and consider the evidence? She said, yes, I'm going to listen to all the evidence. This is no different than any other juror that he asked that exact same question to and received the exact same answer. Wamsley takes a fairly lengthy recess to check his notes and review the law. He returns to the bench with his ruling. He also makes some pointed remarks. The uh, court, when 
this type of motion is brought before it is asked to do uh, really two things, make two primary findings. Um, the first of which uh, this court has found that there appears to be uh, intentional uh, discrimination in the pound. Uh, that's that prima facie case. Uh, and I guess before I get into this, um, one of the challenges that I think uh, counsel recognize in this case is the, the racial overtones in the case. And um, those can't, uh, at least here, without the, the jury present, uh, based on the questioning, we have not been able to escape those discussions with the panel, and, and they've just come up in a lot of different contexts. So you know, this is sort of a continuation of a conversation that I think will continue for a long time with respect to this case uh, and maybe um, many others. Wamsley then says the Batson decision is very limiting. That's because if a judge is given a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason to justify a strike, it's usually enough to allow the strike to stand. But effectively, what the court's being asked to do here is determine whether or not the defense is not being genuine with respect to these strikes. Then Wamsley cites what legendary Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote in his concurring opinion in the Batson case. Marshall had signed off on it as a member of the majority, but he had serious concerns. Justice Marshall and his concurrence was talking about Batson, and he said specifically, the decision today will not end racial the racial discrimination that preemptories inject into the jury selection process. And the reason he said that was because his view of it was that uh, preemptories uh, just give the parties the opportunity to place the court and the system into this, uh, this balancing of race versus legitimate purpose. Wamsley says, in this case, the defense has been able to explain why, separate from race, eight black jurors were struck from the panel. does not change the fact that that initial finding was out there. It doesn't feel like that is how it worked, but it's been explained to the court under the terms of Batson why those particular strikes were made. And the court is not going to place upon uh, the defendants a finding that they are being disingenuous to the court or otherwise are not being truthful with the court when it comes to their reasons for striking these jurors. So because of that and because of, again, the limitations I think Batson places upon this court's analysis, I'm denying the motion. Hogue then addresses Wamsley one more time. She wants to make clear the defense has no ill intent against black jurors. She says... There is a distinction between exercising a strike to discriminate against a juror because of his or her own race, as opposed to using a strike to remove a juror who harbors some bias or prejudice. Batson was meant to address stereotyping, drawing inferences about a juror's ability to serve based solely on his or her race. And we stand as a team to make it clear to the court, and I appreciate the court's understanding that that is not what we did and that we had to accept the realities of the limitations of what kind of jury panel we were left with given the notorious nature of this case and the overwhelming publicity. Walmsley let Hogue have her say. His response indicates that he was not impressed. Well, the court's already indicated where I sit on it, um, that is the defense's position and um, 
again, uh, I've explained what I believe are the limitations with regard to Batson in this court's <coughs> analysis. Under the circumstances of this case, I explained my ruling, and um, that's where we are. Again, here's Steve Bright, the Yale and Georgetown law professor. Justice Thurgood Marshall pointed out that this process of challenging uh, jurors and the judge deciding was the reason race or was the reason the one given uh, by the side that exercised the strikes. Uh, He said that's not going to end race discrimination. A couple of reasons. He said any lawyer can think up a reason. That's not very hard. And you see in a lot of cases where uh, a lawyer says, well, I struck the person because I didn't like their haircut. Uh, or uh, they looked at the floor when I was asking them questions, trivial reasons like that. Uh, And the other uh, thing that Justice Marshall said was uh, this only protects against intentional race discrimination, not unconscious bias uh, that a lawyer may have in exercising the strikes. And as for those black jurors who initially said they believed Travis Gregg and Roddy were guilty, Bright said Wamsley had no choice but to deny the state's challenges. But here, the reasons the defense gave, like they hunted him down and killed him like an animal, I mean, that's a race-neutral reason uh, for perhaps not wanting that juror uh, on uh, the jury. So here, all the reasons which went to uh, the juror thought the defendants were guilty or the defendant said something that characterized the case in a way Uh, that uh, sounded like they were already made their minds up. Even though the judge may not have agreed with them and didn't grant a strike for cause, uh, that would still be a reason uh, for exercising a peremptory strike. One other thing should be noted. Remember, the prosecution had 12 peremptory strikes. They used each one against a white juror. So what about the jurors who were seated? We'll give you brief summaries of them. But remember, under Wamsley's instructions, the news media cannot disclose information like occupation, marital status, and the like that may make these people easily identifiable in a small community. Bill, myself, and our colleague Shadi Abu Saeed took turns sitting through the jury selection process. We'll all take turns. Shadi, can you get us started? There's one white woman who believes people of color are not treated equally by police and are sometimes profiled by them. There's a white man who's a 50-year member of the Republican Party. He says when he's talked with friends about the case, it's often led to the question, what do you think the truth is? There's a white woman who said she doesn't know enough about the case to have formed an opinion. She also says she doesn't think Roddy's cell phone video tells the whole story. There's another white woman who said she's not familiar with the details because she goes out of her way not to read the news. She said, I'd rather spend my energy elsewhere. And there's a white man who's a former law enforcement officer. He said he's watched the cell phone video about 10 times. The lone black person on the jury is a man who travels a lot for his job. He believes people of color are treated unfairly by law enforcement. And while he's seen the cell phone video at least three times, he said he's not that familiar with the case. There's a white woman who gets her news from the Epic Times, a far-right media outlet. She called the cell phone video obscene and said she doesn't want to see it again. I have to say, I was very surprised the prosecution didn't use one of its strikes on her. Another white woman said she's concerned about serving as a juror, and she's fearful about being followed home from the courthouse. She said, the state of the world right now has everyone on edge. There's a white woman who's a self-described never-Trumper. She said she wants to serve on the case because it's historic. She also said she thinks race played a role in the case. 
There's another white woman who said to the three defendants, this may be mean, but they wouldn't be my friends. They're not my kind of people. She also said, everybody deserves a fair trial. I'd want somebody to do that for me. Another said that there are two sides to every story. But she asked, why did it happen? Why didn't they just call the police? She expressed negative feelings about Travis, Greg, and Roddy and believes race played a role. There was also a white woman who said she doesn't know enough about the case to have an opinion on guilt or innocence. So when she received her jury summons in the mail, she started researching the case to see what she was getting into. Thanks, Shaddy. This is Breakdown. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. So we know the 15 jurors, but we don't know which are the 12 jurors and which ones are the three alternates. All told, like we said, we have 14 white people and one black person, and we have 11 women and four men. As we headed for trial, there were still some big pretrial motions hanging out there. So with the jury picked on Wednesday, Walmsley told them to come back on Friday. On Thursday, the judge heard arguments on those motions. The big challenges, called motions in limine, were the state's request to keep out evidence Ahmad was on probation at the time he was killed, and a defense request to keep out photos of the vanity license plate on the front of Travis's pickup truck, the one with the old Georgia flag with the Confederate battle emblem. The defense argued it was prejudicial, a somewhat ironic way to frame it. They also argued it could not be used as an explanation for why Ahmad ran from the McMichaels because no one knows for sure if Ahmad actually saw the license plate. Prosecutor Donikoski had quite a comeback. She agreed that Arbery trying to run away could not be tied to whether he saw the license plate. She said the state would use it to show motive. If so, Donikoski will use it after the defense presents its case. Then, on Friday morning... Wamsley finally announces his rulings. The court's rulings on the state's motion in limine with regard to probation and the defendant's motion in limine with regard to the vanity plate, uh, as indicated in that um, short email last night, the court is granting the state's motion in limine with regard to probation. I'll put a written order into the record so that it is uh, in the record. And the court is denying the defense motion limine with regard to the vanity plate. And again, we'll put a written order into the record. Probation is out. The vanity plate is in. More blows to the defense. Opening statements can be a highlight of a trial. Put simply, they're roadmaps, lawyers describing what the evidence will be. Good ones keep the jury's attention all the way through. They can be revealing. They can be informative. They can be transformative. Lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski went first. It's the state's burden, after all. Her opening was indeed revealing. As is often the case, Donikoski spoke as if there is no other way to look at a set of facts. She was authoritative. She was uncompromising. And she was powerful. And her opening was, well, it was long. One hour and 35 minutes when it was expected to go no longer than one hour. But yes powerful it was. Why are we here? We are here because of assumptions and driveway decisions. 
A very wise person once said, don't assume the worst of another person's intentions until you actually know what's going on with them. Don't assume the worst with what they intend to do. But in this case, all three of these defendants did everything they did based on assumptions. Not on facts, not on evidence, on assumptions. She goes through the charges, including felony murder. That's when someone is committing a felony and someone dies because of it. She takes off some of those felonies. Aggravated assault with pickup trucks. Both Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael were in a white F-150 pickup truck that they used to cut off Mr. Arbery. To go at him, to get him to stop. As for Roddy, Donikowski says he used his Chevy Silverado to drive at Ahmad and force him into a ditch. That's aggravated assault with a 5,000-pound lethal weapon, otherwise known as a pickup truck. One more. False imprisonment. That is where you detain somebody in violation of their personal liberty. You hold them. Or in the words of Greg McMichael, you trap them like a rat. Donikowski goes into a good bit of detail about Larry English's vacation home, the one a few doors down from the McMichaels. It was under construction, open, and unsecured. Worried about teenagers using his dock, English set up security cameras with sensors that alerted him on his cell phone when someone was on his property. English discovered that $2,500 in electronics equipment had been stolen out of his boat. Initially, he told people in Satilla Shores he thought the theft occurred there. But later, he realized he didn't really know. It could have happened at his home in Douglas, two hours away. On October 25th, 2019, English was alerted to his cell phone. The cameras captured a man later identified as Ahmad on his dock. He does not take anything, doesn't steal anything. He's wandering around on this dock, looking around. On November 18th, 2019, English's cameras spot Ahmad there again, and he's there once more about a month later. He doesn't take anything. Then, on February 11th, 2020, Travis is about to head out when he sees someone dart across the road. He turns his headlights on the person. It turns out to be Ahmad. English saw him, too, on his cell phone, and he called a neighbor about it. When Travis calls 911, Greg overhears him. They go get their guns, and they head over to see if the man is still there. Glen County Police Officer Robert Rash then arrives at the scene. Ahmad is not there. But what transpires next seems pretty important. It's memorialized on Rash's body cam video. Officer Rash is standing there, and you know what he says to the McMichaels? He says, I'm talking to Mr. English right now, and he sent me some videos, and Mr. English says that this guy has never stolen or taken anything from this property. So the McMichaels at this point in time are fully informed that the owner of the house has informed law enforcement that Mr. Arbery has never taken anything from this property. They know this. Greg McMichael, of course, pipes up and says, well, it's at least criminal trespass. A misdemeanor, okay? And at that point, Officer Rash goes, well, it's probably loitering and prowling, okay? Also a misdemeanor. Don't forget, a citizen's arrest was valid at the time if someone saw another person fleeing a scene and had reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion 
that that person had committed a felony like burglary. Not a misdemeanor like trespass or loitering. At no time on this video do you hear the words burglary or attempted burglary. No one's talking about a burglary or an attempted burglary with Officer Rash. Ahmad shows up again at the English house on February 23rd, 2020. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon, just after 1 o'clock. And it's the last few minutes of Ahmad's life. A guy who lived down the street, Matthew Albenze, sees Ahmad go inside the English house. Albenze walks up under an oak tree and calls 911. Maybe because he sees Albenze watching him, Ahmad leaves the English home and takes off running. And he runs right past the McMichaels home. Greg is in his front yard upholstering some seat cushions for his boat. He sees Ahmad, identifies him from the videos taken by English's security camera, and then he goes inside to find Travis. He's inside when Greg McMichael runs inside. Greg McMichael assumed the worst. Greg McMichael had absolutely no immediate knowledge, none, that Mr. Arbery had been inside wandering around for a few minutes, the open, unsecured construction site. They get into Travis's pickup truck. Greg is crammed atop a toddler car seat. They take off and pass Roddy's house. Roddy's in his front yard. He goes inside, gets the keys to his own pickup truck, and joins in the chase. Donikowski plays footage of that happening from Brian's own security camera. And what's Mr. Roddy Brian do? Defendant Brian, you saw him pull up on his driveway and pull back like that? When Mr. Arbery came running this way, he pulled out to try and hit him and ran him into the ditch. False imprisonment on Burford, aggravated assault with a motor vehicle by both parties on Burford to cut off Mr. Arbery. Ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, Mr. Arbery is under attack. by all three of these men. He's under attack. Because that doesn't stop Mr. Bryan that he went into the ditch. Mr. Bryan tries to hit Mr. Arbery one, two, three, four different times with his pickup truck. Four different times with his pickup truck. Mr. Arbery is under attack. Donikowski then references what Greg later told police. So how do you know Mr. Ahmad Arbery was under attack by strangers with intent to kill him. Because Greg McMichael told the police this. Stop or I'll blow your f***ing head off. That's what he said to Mr. Arbery. Donikowski made sure to tell the jury four times that Greg had said that. Using a PowerPoint, she plays the cell phone video for the jury. She shows freeze-framed photos of it as well. Ultimately, we see Ahmad running up the street toward Travis's pickup. Greg is standing in the back cab. Travis is out with his shotgun pointed at Ahmad. Donikowski tells jurors to pay close attention to what happens just before the pivotal moment. And because Travis is shielded and standing behind the truck, she says, look under it to see the shadows. This is really important. The reason the shadow is important is because it shows Travis McMichael's shadow. It shows this long thing the Remington 12-gauge shotgun, and it shows Mr. Arbery right here. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, Travis McMichael did not stay on the driver's side of the pickup truck. 
He didn't stay right here where his dad was in a higher position. That door is open. What did Travis McMichael do with that shotgun? He stepped around that open door and moved toward Mr. Arbor. He's got his shotgun and he's moving toward him to intercept him. It's right here in front of the car, right? And Mr. Arbery comes around. And he shoots him. Shoots him like that. First shotgun blast in the front of that car. Upon seeing that, Wanda Cooper, Arbery's mom, releases an audible wail of sorrow. Donikoski recounts what Greg, Travis, and Roddy did and didn't tell police after the shooting. She said, no one said they were making a citizen's arrest, and no one said what crime may have been committed. Donikoski goes over this exchange with Greg. Did this guy break into a house today? Did he commit a burglary today? What did he do today that you have immediate knowledge of? That's just it. I don't know, says Greg McMichael. And look at what he does. He says, well, you know, that's what I told, what's your name out there? I said, listen, you might want to go knock on some doors because, you know, I'm sure he did something. And if you police officers would just go and investigate that, I'm sure you could figure out what crime it was that he committed today. I'm sure you could. Just, just go out. And, I mean, you should investigate. Now that we've killed him, figure out what crime it was that he was committing. Denikoski ends with this. The evidence the state expects to show at trials, this was an attack on Mr. Arbery for five minutes, and the only thing Mr. Arbery did was to run away. They assumed that he must have committed some crime that day. Stop, we want to talk to you, is not an arrest. Ahmad runs away, they cut him off, try to hit him with the pickup trucks, and the shotgun comes out. Why? because he wouldn't stop, so they could identify him, so that the police could later investigate what it was that he must have done that day. Donikoski's opening took the air out of the room. Like we said, it was powerful, and it seemed that it would be incredibly hard to follow. So when Bob Rubin addressed the jury, he had his work cut out for him. He would have to explain why his client, Travis, had chased an unarmed black man and shot at him three times, and to explain how he was justified in doing so in self-defense. His approach was interesting. I think he got the jurors thinking. The pool reporter inside the courtroom said he had their attention. He began by saying, this is what the case is really all about. This case is about duty and responsibility. It's about Travis McMichael's duty and responsibility to himself, to his family, and to his neighborhood. And it's about your duty and responsibility as jurors. The state talked about actions based on assumptions. I'm going to talk about facts. Facts in this case. Rubin says Travis is 35 and was born and bred in Brunswick. 
He's a father with a five-year-old son, a former member of the U.S. Coast Guard. Ruben said Travis attended the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Charleston. And while in the Coast Guard, he had been authorized to do investigations, searches, and to use a weapon. And he had arrest powers. By February 2020, Travis was working at Metzen Marine in nearby Kingsland as a coxswain, moving boats around the harbor. He was living in Satilla Shores with his father Greg, his sister Lindsay, his mother Lee, and his thin three-year-old son, Everett. And Ruben paints a detailed picture of life in Satilla Shores, a place he called a neighborhood on edge. Satilla Shores is a quiet, scenic, middle-class neighborhood. The kind of neighborhood where parents let the kids ride around on their bikes. The kind of neighborhood where, when you're my age, you go for a walk after dinner. The kind of neighborhood that we all kind of aspire to live in. It's safe, it's beautiful, you work in the yard, you play on the river. This is the family and community that Travis McMichael felt a duty and responsibility to. The case really begins months before in 2019 because Satilla Shores was a neighborhood on edge. Crime had gone up. So much so that behaviors began to change by the neighbors. Kids were not allowed, some kids, to play outside after dark. Residents of Satilla Shores installed home surveillance cameras to catch the thieves that were taking their property. And neighbors in Satilla Shores felt a duty and responsibility to each other to post on the neighborhood pages, Facebook and Nextdoor, about the crime that was happening. Ruben said Travis was intimately aware how crime was impacting the neighborhood. At one point, Travis had his handgun stolen from his truck parked out in the yard. Ruben said those were the things that were on Travis's mind when he learned that the man later identified as Ahmad was making repeated visits to the English home. Many of the other details Ruben includes in his opening echo what Donikowski said in hers, so we won't repeat too many of them. But he did make note of something I'd never heard of before. He said while Travis and Greg were chasing Ahmad, Greg had left his phone at home, but Travis had brought his with him. Toward the end of the chase, Travis turned to Greg and asked when the police were going to arrive. Greg said he hadn't called them, so Travis picked up his own phone, dialed 911, and handed the cell to Greg. And Reuben said that shows Travis intended to hold Ahmad until police arrived, not kill him. It's before the first shot is fired, they call the police. That is not evidence of an intent to murder. And as for why Travis brought a gun to the chase, Travis had said when he saw Ahmad outside the English home 12 days before, he saw Ahmad reach for his pocket. It made him think he might have been armed. Travis's training taught him to show a weapon. Not to use a weapon, to show a weapon because... That is a way to de-escalate violence. In the normal situation, you show someone you have a weapon, you get compliance. You don't need to go any further. And so he stands there at the low ready position, not pointing his weapon, 
and Ahmad Arbery is running, and he's running at Travis McMichael. Stop, stop, get down, stop. And this guy is not stopping. And Travis knows that this guy is not going to stop. He's not predictable. He's going to be on him in seconds if he doesn't do something. Then Ruben talks about the struggle that left Ahmad dead. Why did Travis pull the trigger? When Ahmad Arbery makes a left, he's on Travis and Travis has to fire. Because at that point, it's his life or Ahmad Arbery's life. And the only thing, it's weird the way the mind works, the only thing he can think of at that point is Everett. Kind of flashes through his mind. My three, then three-year-old son. So he fires, he pulls down the weapon trying to get it away because Ahmad Arbery's not stopped. That gunshot, which he knows was near his chest. At the time the shots are fired, <clears throat> Travis McMichael reasonably believes because Ahmad Arbery is on him, aggressively, swinging wildly, grabbing hold of him, grabbing hold of the gun, reasonably believes he is justified in firing his weapon, knowing it's gonna, it's gonna kill him, it's gonna at least hurt him, he knows that. But he has no choice because if this guy gets his gun, he's dead, or his dad's dead. And what's he taught in the Coast Guard at the Maritime Law Enforcement Academy? Never lose your weapon. And that's why he shoots. Ruben closes this way. What we're asking you to do is hard. And it may be unpopular. But we're asking you to recognize your responsibility as jurors and being open to the facts and putting aside emotion and listening to the law and applying that and doing your duty. Because we think the only right verdict is not guilty on each and every count in this indictment. Frank Hogue followed Reuben. Both of these defense attorneys had daunting tasks. It seemed Reuben more than held serve after Donikoski's opening. As for Hogue, he had to justify the steps taken by Greg. Because if Greg hadn't have started it, the unarmed Ahmad wouldn't have been shot dead minutes later in the middle of a public street. Hogue was folksy, conversational, matter-of-fact, to the point. And he took just 22 minutes after Donikoski and Rubin spent more than an hour each on their openings. Greg McMichael was absolutely sure. He was absolutely certain. And he was absolutely right. The guy he saw was the guy he suspected. When a young man ran past him at a sprint, he was, as Greg described him to police that day, and you've heard it now several times, his words, hauling ass. The young man had it hooked up, Greg said. Running at a sprint, as Greg reported to police that same afternoon, he wasn't out for no Sunday jog. Hogue says this is what Greg was thinking. So what did Greg believe he was doing, this man, in the house on those occasions? What did he think 
he was doing. Well, Larry English, the owner of the house, had described him to police as plundering around. That same man, Larry English, had reported this to 911, to Greg's neighbors, and to the Glen County police officer, Robert Rash. And it got to Greg McMichael. Hoke repeats what Reuben told the jury. It was a neighborhood on edge. Many wanted to know, who was this guy who kept showing up on Larry English's security camera? There might be a chance, finally, Greg thought, as he told the police later that day, for the police to question this man, to find out, who are you? Why are you here? No one in the neighborhood knows you. And we've had all of these problems in our neighborhood, specifically at that house, but at many other houses. A man who had eluded police up till then, as Greg said to the police later that day, no one could ever, ever catch him. Hogue then says this. The what happened in this case will, for the most part, though there will be some dispute, but for the most part, be without dispute the facts, the what happened in this case. The why it happened is what this case is about. This case turns on intent, beliefs, knowledge, reasons for those beliefs, whether they were true or not. Were there good reasons to believe them? Were there good reasons to believe that this young man, Ahmaud Arbery, had been in this house where things had been taken and that he may have been the person who took them? Were there good reasons to believe that as he ran past Greg McMichael that day, that he was fleeing from someone? Hoog said that when Greg saw Ahmad run to the passenger side of the truck with Travis standing outside with the shotgun, it horrified him. He's now in abject fear that he is about to witness his only son possibly be shot and killed in front of his very eyes. And then that man did something so unexpected to Greg McMichael, so incomprehensible to him, he turned sharp left. He didn't cut right, go across the yard to Satilla Shores and down the street and on his way. The direction, as you've heard, is the only way into that neighborhood with police on the way. No, he turned left towards a man with a shotgun. And he was on Travis instantly. Clearly, it seemed, to Greg McMichael, attempting to take the gun from his son. And as any reasonable person would believe, he would take that gun if he could, and he would use it to shoot his son. Hogue says Greg later told police his intention was to stop Ahmad so he could be arrested by police or at least identified. Hogue finishes by depicting the majesty of the American justice system. And I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I've been doing this a long time. And I consider a room like this, an American courtroom, 
to be practically a sacred place. It's in here that the facts will unfold for you. It's in this room where you will decide the truth. And ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you the truth of this case is that Greg McMichael is not guilty of any of these crimes. When Hoke sat down, Walmsley turned to Goff and asked him to make his opening statement. After a brief recess, Goff told the jury this. Your Honor, at this time, on behalf of Defendant William Roderick Bryan, we reserve, that is, defer our opening statement in this matter. This is a highly unusual tactic by a defense lawyer. The American Bar Association guidelines counsel against it. But I've seen it done a few times before. Once, to great effect. Other times, to no effect at all. It simply means Goff will give his opening statement after the state rests its case. Like you said, highly unusual. But I guess that's also a way to describe Goff himself. Absolutely. After that, the state put up its first and only witness so far. It was Glynn County Police Officer William Duggan. We heard from Duggan in Episode 7, The Immediate Aftermath. He's one of the first officers to arrive at the scene, He's also the officer who puts on his gloves and places his hand over the gaping hole in Ahmad's chest. Duggan's body cam video is played for the jury. It's awful. Just awful. Blood is everywhere. Ahmad's eyes are fixed. They're vacant. Duggan places his hand on Ahmad's bloody t-shirt until he no longer feels a pulse. He then withdraws. As this was played, Wanda Cooper buried her face in her hands comforted by attorney Lee Merritt seated next to her in the gallery. One of the jurors also couldn't take it. She shielded her view with the pad she was taking notes on. After Duggan stepped down from the stand, Wamsley sent the jury home for the weekend. Testimony continues this week. Next on Breakdown. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are at a good breaking point for the day. So... What we're going to do at this point is we're going to adjourn until 9 o'clock Monday morning. Over the weekend, all of the instructions that I've given you still apply. With those instructions, and just to be clear, don't go picking up newspapers. Make sure your news feeds are off. If you're out socially over the weekend, don't let anybody talk to you about the case or approach you about the case. And if anybody's talking about the case wherever you are, please walk away. With those instructions, I again want to thank you. I want to thank you for your service to Glenton County and to the Superior Court. It is appreciated. I appreciate your patience with us as we move through this process together. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will drop an episode every Monday until the end of the trial. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so for all of us. And get that booster, too. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. 
Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.